What a fucking idiot. So you didn't write that? No. This is Brian Nelson, a former leader of the Simon City Royals, TJ's gang. And that was his reaction when I showed him a bunch of emails defending TJ. They'd been written in Brian's name. I was very shocked when you called here because I knew your name from some of the other stuff you've written. Brian told me he's certain that the emails came from TJ himself. It took a while to convince him to sit down with me. You know, when we first talked, I, I got very paranoid of my safety and, hold it, what are they saying? I mean, can I get a case over this? Is somebody setting me up for something? And I started panicking as soon as we got off the phone. I'm like, holy fuck, man, am I going to get caught up in this stupid kid's shit? So this is really annoying to you. It is. When I first met Brian in person, he told me if we did an interview, we'd have to sit with a fair amount of distance between us. He also told me about the knives that he kept with him at all times for his protection. It's a giant understatement, but Brian's been through some stuff. He's been damaged in a way that's hard to imagine. I do everything to make sure I don't go back to jail. I've been out since June 29, 2010. And I did some very ugly stuff in my life. I spent 28 years in prison for a murder I was involved in. Brian went from prison gang leader to a prisoner rights activist. I am in contact with roughly 13,000 prisoners. He's got a full-time job at a nonprofit legal center in Chicago called the Uptown People's Law Center. I run around and help people. I bust my ass. Doesn't matter if you're Latin king or same dudes or what. Doesn't matter if you shot me before. You know, you're an ex-con, I'm an ex-con. We need to work together because we've already been down in that hole. Brian and his girlfriend have bought a house. He's got a car. He's got a dog. He pays his taxes. By all appearances, Brian's rehabilitated. I'm a convicted murderer. I spent most of my life in jail. And I beat the odds. In the 70s and 80s, gangs like the Simon City Royals were at their height. Brian grew up on the north side of Chicago, just a couple blocks away from where the Royals were founded. As a teenager, Brian was in and out of jail. You go to jail. No, it is what it is. If you're a gang member, you expect that. Brian could get out of tight places. One time he was put in a police car. Brian escaped to a crack in the window. The cops said, damn, he's like an itty-bitty mouse. He got the nickname Mousy. In 1982, Mousy was arrested for murder. He was 17. I was told what to do, and I did it. I pled guilty. We did it. And I hurt people, and I hurt their families. It's nothing to be proud of. I was a stupid kid. Brian and TJ's stories are pretty similar. They both joined the Royals around the same age, 11 or 12. They were both charged with murder. TJ was 13, Brian 17. And they were both sent to the same maximum security prison. So far in this show, we've looked at TJ when he started running around with the gang. We've covered the murder that he went down for and how he was convicted. We walked through his exoneration and his release. But the one thing we haven't talked about is prison, the place where TJ became an adult. Almost everyone we talked to said the reason TJ went so out of control was because he spent over a decade in some of the worst prisons in America. 
Now, as much as I've tried, TJ refuses to sit down in person to talk. However, if you want to talk to somebody about gangs in prison and what imprisonment can do to a person, you really can't do any better than talking to Brian Nelson. Some Prison 101 from a pretty good authority. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Frank Maine, and this is Motive. Mousie is dead. I got this little friggin' dog, and somebody else had it, and they used to kick the dog around, and they broke his friggin' leg. His name's Oscar, and I changed his name to Poopy. The first day in my frickin' house, he shit everywhere. And he's hobbling around the house. Took me six months massaging his leg. That little dog has done more for me. Just sitting in my lap in the house alone, petting him. Do people still call you Mousy? I don't like nobody calling me Mousy. That was my nickname when I was a gang member. Was Mousy a big name in Illinois Department of Corrections? Yes. I tell everybody, Mousy's dead. My name is Brian Nelson. And there's one thing you can't call me, and that's N31449. I don't answer to Mousy. I don't answer to that. I don't care. Hey, asshole, I'll answer to that. (laughs) Because I'm an asshole. When Brian became a gang leader, he focused on the other young royals walking into prison, and he tried to teach them how to survive inside the walls. I always think of Graham, Bam Bam. He was a royal for one day and caught a murder. And he tried to tell me he was a royal from my neighborhood. I beat him every fucking day. Till one day when I walked in the cell and I was ready to start again, Listen, you touch me again, I'm going to kill you, motherfucker. He had been sneaking, making a knife. I knew he was. And I hugged him. I said, that's all I want. He goes, what? I said, dude, you don't stand up. You're in trouble. And it's just that fucked up. Me and him still talk to this day. And he thanks me for this. I listened to Mousy. Brian was sent to Stateville Correctional Center, about 40 miles away from Chicago the same prison that T.J. was first sent to. Stateville's been around since the 20s, and it's housed some of Chicago's most notorious criminals. And Stateville at that time was huge. I'll never forget, I walked to the front door, and I meet this guy named Bo Diddley and Skull, and both of them got to be like 6'5", 300 pounds. What you be, white boy? I'm like, holy shit. Gangs are often divided along racial lines, but the Royals, according to Brian, were never a strictly white gang. They were mixed. Everybody looks at the royals like the other white gangs. There was black, Puerto Rican, and Korean royals. Thaddeus Amanis, he's Hispanic. Mike 5050 Matt from Southport Fulton, they were black. The names of some white gangs were racist acronyms. You have the C-Notes, Chicago Neighborhood Organization to Eliminate Spicks. Pure racist organization. Most of their fathers were cops. Then you had the Gaylords. Great American youth, love our race, destroy Spicks. Insane popes protect our people, eliminate spicks. In prison, your gang membership is your protection. Brian says that because the royals weren't aligned with the white racist gangs, they had it especially rough in Stateville. We were basically pariahs. Nobody accepted us, nobody respected us. I asked Brian about how he stayed alive. He began pointing around the room. You have a stapler, you have a clipboard. That's all knives to us. 
I walk in a room when I'm in prison, if you snooze, I'm walking out with your clipboard. Look at the clipboard, look at the top part of that. A stainless steel thing that goes back and forth. You give me a staple, I'll make you 13 knives out of it. You give me a steel mop bucket, I will make you 20 beautiful knives out of it. I mean, I was good, it's my survival. I carried a hacksaw blade around for 10 years in my mouth. Homemade knives might be enough in some places, but this was back in the day, in no ordinary prison. The biggest eye-opener that I got in Stateville, they caught these guys with 11 guns in the cell house. The guy had a sawed-off single-shot shotgun underneath his pillow, and this wasn't broken to some other guys. The first time I saw an Uzi was in Stateville. At that time, the most powerful gang leader in Stateville was a man named Larry Hoover. Hoover is the founder of the biggest street gang in Chicago, the Gangster Disciples. At their peak, the GDs had more than 30,000 members, most of them African-American. For 14 years, Hoover ran the GDs from inside the walls of Stateville. I'd heard the name Larry Hoover all this stuff. I'm sitting in the chow hall, and he came and sat down and talked to us. Hoover gave Brian a book. He said, read it and tell me what you think. And I come in from yard one day, and he goes, how's the book? I'm like, huh? And I didn't think nothing else of it. I go back to my cell. My TV and radio are gone. There he had my TV and radio taken, and I had a choice. Brian could either read the book, or Hoover would put him to work for the gang on shower security. No problem. I read the book that night, did his friggin' book report, and I've never stopped reading. Here's somebody that didn't have to talk to me, didn't know nothing about me or anything, and he made me look at myself. Hoover became a mentor to Brian when he was just a teenager. Brian even ended up being one of Hoover's bodyguards. I would carry two knives. And Larry asked us, why two? I said, well, if something happens and you tell me to give it to you, I got to give it to you, then how am I supposed to watch your back? He goes, you're learning. With Hoover's support, Brian quickly became the leader of the Simon City Royals in Stateville. I never asked to be a leader. I never wanted to be a leader. I'm not going to let nobody hurt my guys. Larry Hoover had helped to create an alliance of different gangs called the Folk Nation. African-American gangs like the GDs became allies with Latino gangs like the Spanish Cobras. They banded together to protect themselves from rivals. It was set up to stop all gang violence. Mousy brought the Simon City Royals into the Folk Nation. The Royals now had a lot more backup in prison. And if anyone messed with them, they had to answer to Mousy. And I made a statement to guys, if you touch my brothers, I will get you. Brian also made sure that his members followed the rules. First thing anybody knew, if you were a royal and you had a rape case, I'm going to get you. You shit on our name. If you steal, we put your hands in them doors, and I had to do this. Kick the fucking door shut on your hands. Because you could have got all of us killed by stealing from somebody. According to Brian, he was accountable for his guys. If a royal was a rapist or a stool pigeon, and they got admitted into the folks, Brian was the one who would have to answer for it. When I made that agreement with Larry, I knew what I was doing. I forfeited my life. I knew somebody was going to slip through, and they didn't. Back then, the gangs in Stateville were powerful. Almost all of the inmates were members. Drugs and homemade booze were easy to get. Larry Hoover said they even had the keys to every door in the prison, except the doors to leave. We didn't run them prisons ever. The warden ran them, the director ran them. But? 
we were allowed to do things. More so than now? A lot more so than now. So that was a state bill that Brian Nelson experienced. But by the time TJ got there in the mid-90s, there had been a tectonic shift in the balance of power between gangs and the prison administration. And a big part of why that happened had to do with one particular inmate. Richard Speck. Oh, God. I had no idea who he was. And I was telling my mom what I do every day. And I'm like, well, I work with Alonzo, this guy, Shaky, this guy, this guy. And then there's this guy, Richard Speck, who does all the painting. And my mom said, what'd you just say? Do you know who the fuck he is? Richard Speck was one of America's most infamous murderers. He had the words Born to Raise Hell tattooed on his arm. One summer day in Chicago in 1966, Speck drunkenly broke into a dormitory for student nurses. He killed eight young women, one by one. Richard was the main painter for Stayville. As a painter, Speck had access to the whole prison. His cell door was never locked unless the prison was on lockdown. And there was just a select group of us. The painting crew could move contraband anywhere they wanted in their carts. They also made their own booze and paint buckets. The recipe? Five gallons of water, five pounds of raisins, five pounds of sugar, and a pinch of yeast. You drink your first little bottle like that, you don't feel it. In the middle of the second one, it's like, holy fuck. Then we learned how to distill it and make it into moonshine. Me and Richard became friends in there, you know? Richard had anything he wanted in that joint. Why did he have everything he wanted? Richard did paintings. Besides painting the walls, Speck was also an amateur artist with a fan base outside the prison. Paintings sold for a lot. You know, he had these weird old followers. Those paintings were currency for Speck. Now, could you imagine, and this was an eye-opener to me, Richard Speck could walk up and get an ounce of cocaine on his name in prison and said, I'll have you the money by the end of the month. Ounce of cocaine was going for 1500 in 1984, 85 in Stateville. No problem. That's how wide open Stateville was back then? Yeah. This openness inside Illinois prisons was not widely known. But then, somehow, in 1988, somebody made a tape of Speck inside Stateville. In the video, Speck is snorting a pile of white powder that looks like cocaine. And he has sex with another inmate on camera. It's tough to hear, but Speck said, quote, If they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose. About eight years later, TV journalist Bill Curtis got the footage. How can this happen? The good life Richard Speck enjoyed is merely a symptom of a far larger problem. The tape created a firestorm. Tonight on 2 News at 10, the Richard Speck tapes. First they made headlines, then they forced a state investigation in Springfield. That shamed everybody in the Department of Corrections when that Speck tape was leaked to the news. Everybody that worked in the Department of Corrections in Springfield looked like complete idiots. The gangs were out of control, but the idea of a mass murderer having a good time in prison was too much for the public to stomach. The state of Illinois was already looking into reforming its overcrowded prison system, but the release of the spec tape kicked it into overdrive. State of Illinois officials were shocked by the tapes and launched an investigation. Many experts, however, feel the complete breakdown of our nation's prison system is not a matter of if, but when. 
All of that public outrage set the stage for the opening of Illinois' only supermax prison. It was a place to isolate gang leaders and other dangerous prisoners, the, quote, worst of the worst. The prison was called TAMS. It's closed now, but TAMS is where Mousy spent over 12 years in solitary confinement. I got to the point where there's nothing you could take from me no more. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. I'm the highest escape risk in the state of Illinois. Why? I, I, climbed, I built a ladder and escaped from Stateville. I climbed out of their prison. Brian Nelson, then Mousy, got over the 33-foot wall in 1984. He was quickly caught and sent back to Stateville and he was now considered a major escape risk. That, and the fact that he was a gang leader, made him a prime target for the state's prison crackdown. They said anybody that stands up for herself just got up and got shipped out. Didn't do nothing wrong. They just gave him goodbye. Brian was placed on what's known as the circuit. I was transferred from prison to prison. I was beat horrifically at every prison I went to. They have to take me outside for one hour a week. So they put two pairs of leg irons on me, two waist chains, a dog leash, a collar around my neck that goes down under my testicles. And if I move, they pull that. And I ball up and I'm face first into the concrete. And there's a guy on each side of me with a mini 14. And I'm allowed to take 10 steps that way and 10 steps back this way for 45 minutes a week. This went on for five years. The ways that Brian and TJ ended up in prison are pretty similar. They both joined the Royals around the same young age. They were both charged with murder, and they both ended up in maximum security prison. There is, of course, one big difference. I was guilty of my crimes. I did my crime. But can you imagine being innocent and going through this? One day, in 1998, federal marshals came to get Brian. They didn't tell him where he was going or why. Brian was transported in shackles to Illinois' new super-maximum security prison, TAMS. I spent 12 years in TAMS, and I cannot tell you what TAMS did to me. At the TAMS Correctional Center, Brian was placed in solitary confinement in an 8-by-10-foot cell. He spent 23 hours a day alone. He had no contact with the other inmates. So this is it for the rest of my life in this box? You know, and the things they were doing to me. TJ didn't go through none of that. You know, I did 42 days in blackout. No light at all. And I got out because I became an animal trying to bite this guy's arm that's sliding this tray into this cage. Brian says in TAMS, he went from 176 pounds to 108. He spent days scrubbing his cell with a toothbrush. He tried to hang himself. I paced 16 to 18 hours a day in TAMS. 
they literally were sweeping the bottom of my shoes off the floor. They had to cut my feet every other week from the blood blisters. I just walked back and forth, back and forth for 12 years. Brian would catch spiders and keep them as companions. He became a devout Catholic and prayed for seven hours a day. I copied the Bible word for word. One year, two months, and nine days it took me. But it kept me... Kept you going? Yeah. That box did something I I can't explain. I was writing a book about it. And when I went back and read what I wrote the night before, and I was talking to the cell as if it was a person talking about how lonely it has to be without me there. And I read that, and I'm like, fuck. I'm talking to fucking walls as if it's a person. TJ was never locked away in a supermax prison for years and years like Brian, but he was often placed in segregation cells. He kept insisting he was innocent and didn't belong in prison. He'd break the rules and get 22 hours in the cell, alone. TJ would also pace the cage like an animal. Other prisoners around him went insane. Some wrote on the walls with their own feces. In court testimony, TJ said he reached the, quote, bottom of the barrel. Sad part is, seeing what I went through, I don't know everything TJ's went through. Me and TJ sort of went through a lot of shit. We were kids, we got locked up. We spent most of our life in a box, fighting to survive, fighting to get out. I never expected to get out of prison. Brian was paroled in 2010. He was one of the first prisoners released after an extended stay at TAMS. The guys on the street didn't even know about me until I got out. And then it's like, nope, 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 nope. I'm done. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. The Simon City Royals, including TJ, tried to contact Brian after his release. They wanted Mousy. You're always going to hold Mousy over my head. Half them motherfuckers, I don't give a fuck about them. Motherfuck all of them. I gave you 28 years of my life. The only thing they want me to do is come out here and be chief. I could have came out here and been a drug baron or whatever they think I could have been. I've had tattoos taken off my face. I've had a gang emblem that was on my back covered up. I walked away when I got out. I'm not going back. You can't offer me enough money. Mousy may be dead, but living on the outside after nearly three decades in prison has been far from easy for Brian. I tried to open a bank account. I didn't exist. I was nothing. Who are you? We can't find anything. I had never driven a car. They say you don't forget how to ride a bicycle. Yes, you do. It's been tough for Brian to be around, quote, normal people. I went to Hawaii last year. And we're in the hotel in Waikiki, and this lady stops and blocks our way, and she's talking on her cell phone. I said, excuse me. Excuse me. Bitch, move. And everybody stopped. I said, you arrogant motherfucker. You think you just stop and block everything? You don't give a fuck about nobody around you? If I did that to somebody in jail, that could cost me my life. In prison, you have manners. Out here, people don't give a fuck. They got two earbuds in, and if you're in their way, they're going to push you out the way. Brian's got a job. He's got a girlfriend. He's able to take vacations. But prison's always there. 
Well, except for this one time in Colorado. I jumped in a glacial lake. My nuts were up here. And I just jumped in, you know, yeah. 11,000 feet up in this campground and it's beautiful. No police, no sirens, no gangbangers, nothing. Sitting in front of a fire, you know. I felt free. I knew what it was like to be you guys, you know, for the first time in my life. There are around 80,000 inmates in solitary confinement in America, more than anywhere else in the world. Most studies say that solitary almost uniformly causes psychological damage. Prisoners become sicker, angrier, and more violent than when they went in. Solitary confinement is also really expensive. That was one reason why TAMS, Illinois' only supermax prison, was shut down in 2012. There's not one day that TAMS does not come in my head. My aunt, at the first family reunion when I was out, she stopped me. She goes, I got a question. She goes, do you think God did all this to you so you could do what you're doing? And I go, what do you mean? She goes, you talk to people about what you went through and you're affected because you bear your soul. And I looked at her, I said, I hope he didn't. I didn't deserve this. You know, but it, that question's always been there. I didn't deserve this. You know? I'm more fucked up now than when I first got out. A couple years after his release, Brian began talking a lot more about prison. He's spoken at universities and conferences. Brian wants to educate people about the horrors of solitary confinement, but talking about it hasn't been liberating. It's led to Brian's self-destructing. I would be found naked in the closet, in the dark, incoherent, just staring off in space. And I went through 13 different psychiatrists. One of them, I broke his jaw because he kept talking about, it ain't that bad, I know what you went through. I said, you need to stop saying that to me. I need to leave here before I hurt you. He goes, oh, you're just being overdramatic. It's not that bad. We just need to talk about it. And I just hit him. When I first got home and I was talking, I'm walking around Englewood 3, 4 in the morning with $10,000 on me. I was trying to get killed. God. The next time they caught me, I was going 200 miles an hour down Lakeshore Drive on a motorcycle. And the police stopped me, and I'm like, I'm looking at him like, well, what you gonna do about it? He goes, what are you trying to do, kill yourself? And I said, yeah. He goes, what? I said, yeah. I said, why else would I be going this fast? Imagine what would have happened if Brian had $25 million. Next time on Motive. I go, did the guards really hit you in there? And he goes, hell yeah, they kick our ass. TJ in prison. Because he was one of us is why he was safe. And when he got out, he understood that. TJ was about Aristotle and Aquinas and Latin and Greek, and he's more Catholic than I am, for God's sake. Even at that point, as a priest. <laughs> Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago based on original reporting from the Chicago Sun-Times. I'm Frank Main. The producer is Colin McNulty. The executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Our engineer is Shelley Steffens. Special thanks to the listeners whose financial support of WBEZ made this podcast possible. Mm-hmm.